Welcome to Lakewood Sermon Podcast. We're glad you're here, and we'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 online at lakewoodok.com live. Or we'd also love to see you in person at our campus in McAllister. Good morning. You all made it. You're here. You, you survived another week. Congratulations. Who thought we'd get here? Not me. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, welcome. We're glad you're here. Today, you came into this building. And then at some point, you walked into this room. And some would say at this point that you were stepping into the sanctuary, but I'd like to take a second before we dive in today and kind of disprove that for just a moment. Because truth be told, according to Scripture, you're not walking into the sanctuary. You actually are the sanctuary. We have the Spirit of the Lord living inside of us. And that makes you one of the dwelling places of God in this world. And I say that because whenever we come into the auditorium, the church together, what we're really doing is we're coming in and we're giving a concentrated presence of the Lord as he is in all of our lives. And we come together and we worship God from that place. And with everything that's happening in this world, one thing I can tell you definitively right now is this, that we serve a God who loves us and who is acting on our behalf enough that he is worthy of our worship. And so I'm excited today that we get to open his word and we get to talk about it. So let's take a second and let's go to God and let's ask him to bless our time for him to speak and for us to be able to hear. Lord, we love you. God, we think you're amazing. Um, You do so much for us. And God, so much that we don't even understand. We don't see you working behind the scenes. We don't see all the different things you're doing in our lives and the intentionality that you're approaching us with. But Father, I just want to stop and just say thank you for that. Thank you that you are powerful, that you are in control. Thank you that you know what's going on. And Father, I ask that you would speak today. God, that it wouldn't be my words, that it would be yours. That your Holy Spirit would move through me, that it would move in the hearts of your people. And God, that your word would not just be something that convicts, but it's something that we would apply And God, that you would help us as a church and as your people to move. God, please bless the time we have right now. God, please speak to us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're in the second week of our series, excuse me, um, Who You Are, which is a series where we're going through Scripture not to ask the question, who am I? But rather, we're going through Scripture and we're saying, according to God, this is who you are, the statement, not the question. In the series, we're attempting to do two things. We want to remind us of who we are, but then we also want to explore what Scripture says our actions should be based on that identity, meaning that our actions actually come from our identity, from the source on which we've built our security, from the source that we've built our foundation. That is what our actions flow from. And if you look at the Psalms of David, you're going to find a theme very quickly in what he writes where he acknowledges something pretty significant. So we're going to start there in Psalm chapter 63. It's the Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. This is what he said. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary and beholding your power and your glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. It's pretty clear in this passage, and in many like it, that David is searching for something. He's searching for one thing. 
He desires one thing that he believes to be better than life. The thing that was the source of his purpose, the thing that was the source of his foundation, the thing that was the source of his security. And we've been talking about this, that at the root of every single person lives, every single person who does live, every single person who has lived, every single person who will live, at the root of every person is a savior. Something that we are counting on, something that we are building our hopes on, that we build our foundation on. Something we build our identity, our self-esteem, our security on. And it can be our jobs, it can be our relationships, it can be our intellect. It can be many things, but what we see in the writings of David, the apostles, the prophets, and many others, is that if that thing is not Jesus, then we're actually missing out on the greater thing. See, David cared about the one thing, and jobs, family, the approval of others, relationships, they're not bad things. Those are good things that God has given us and God has provided us, but they only become dangerous when we attempt to make these good things the one thing, the core pursuit. And when we trust something other than Jesus to be our Savior, when we measure our success by the cultural metric of the day, we end up frustrated, we end up anxious, and we end up one step further away from the Savior who promises everything we're looking for. Everything we need and very little of what we want, which is actually a blessing because we tend to desire the things that provide the opposite of what we're actually looking for, what we actually need. And so Jesus needs to be the one thing, the foundation on which we build our identity. So as we go into this series, as we go into this week, I want to ask this question Where is your identity? Where is your hope? Where is your foundation? Is it in these things, these good things that we're trying to make the one thing? Or is it in Christ? Because Scripture tells us that our identity is not in our accomplishments, it's not in our failures, it's not in the things that we cherish as far as material things in our lives. Scripture tells us a very different story of who we are. And I want to take the start of the sermon today for us to, as a family, as the church, make some statements together as to who we are, who the Word of God and who the Creator of the earth and everything else says we are. And so what I'd like to do is this. We're going to go through this, and I'd like to ask you to just repeat after me, because there's power in the spoken word. There's power when we speak these things. And as you speak these things, I want to ask you to ask yourself, do I honestly believe this? I know Jesus says it. I know God says it. But do I actually believe this? So we're going to do that today, okay? Here we go. Here's the first one. I'm the workmanship of God. Go ahead. Amen. Do you believe that? Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's the next one. I am made in God's image. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I am known by God. Psalm 139, for you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm forgiven. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of, of God's grace. I am a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
I am chosen. First Peter 2.9, but you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I am a child of God. I will believe that. Romans 8.15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I am loved. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You are the workmanship of God. You are made in God's image. You are known by God. You are forgiven. You are a new creation. You are chosen. You are a child of God, and you are loved. Do you believe it? When this becomes the core of who we are, when this becomes our identity, our actions become reactions to his grace. And the harder callings of Jesus go from obligations to privileges. So with that as our foundation, <clears throat> we ask this question. I ask you this question of myself, of you, of the scriptures. What does a Christian life look like when our actions come from that identity? What does a Christian look like when our actions come from the identity that is given to us by Christ? And for this series, we're going to be looking at things in the Bible where Jesus talks about these things the most. We're going to be looking at the, at the themes that he talks about. We're going to be looking about, at these ideas that Jesus talks about and says that this is important. And we're going to start attempting to apply those principles to our lives. So as we go on, I ask you this question. Are you ready? Amen. I don't really know if you are or not. I'm not. I know that. <laughs> but the truth is that that's Okay. Because God doesn't call prepared people. He prepares called people. And so as we step into that today, understand this, that you may not be ready for what we're talking about today. You may not be ready for what we're going to talk about next week, but you are called by God, and he will lead the way. So let's dive into it together. One of the most common commands in all of Scripture is this. It says, do not fear. It's throughout the whole of Scripture, and Jesus talks about it often. But when we talk about fear, there are several words that kind of fit into that, right? Worry, anxiety. And Jesus has some things to say on this. Jerry and Francine just read it to us a little bit. We're going to touch on to it again real quick. In Matthew 6, 25, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus says, don't be anxious. And I know you're like me. You read that, 
and you think, sweet, I'm, I'm not anxious about anything anymore. It was that quick. It was just a push-button thing, because that's pretty much everything that Jesus calls us to. Once we accept him, it just, it's easy from that point on. No. We read that. But Jesus says, don't be anxious. Look at how I provide for things that are not as important as you. In Luke 12, 6 and 7, he says this, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Fear not. You are more valuable than many sparrows. So right out of the gate, you have this. You are more valuable than many sparrows, at least five, or two pennies. So later today, when someone says, how are you doing? Just say, hey, I'm more valuable than sparrows. And so scripture says, for this reason, because God takes care of things that are so much less valuable than you are, for that reason, trust him. Don't worry. Don't be anxious, because God is in control. And so scripture says, for this reason, don't worry, which makes sense. I can make my mind understand that, but the thing I can't make it understand is how to apply that. Jesus tells us not to worry, but my response to Jesus is, okay, I get it, but do you see what's happening here, Jesus? Do you see all the things that are going on? There are pandemics, there are earthquakes, there are wars, there are violent riots, there are division, there's conspiracy theories, and we haven't even hit our own backyards yet. How about personal finances? How about taxes? How about marital problems? How about kids that walk away? How about factories closing down? How about sickness? How about death? Cars breaking down and every other thing that is trying to crush us. And Jesus' response to that is, don't worry. He's not downplaying your concerns. He's trying to show you his provision. He is a very capable God. But whenever Jesus says, don't worry, I can only conclude one of two things whenever I come to him with my worries. Either Jesus is completely out of touch, or he knows what he's talking about. Either he is completely off his rocker, or he is actually as capable as he says he is. And hear this. We serve a Savior who came into the world, who lived the human life. And this is a Savior who is not out of touch with the human condition. He's not out of touch with what it means to be human. Hebrews 4.15 says it this way. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Jesus knows us. He knows our struggles and in his words in John 16, 33, in the, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have hardship, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Jesus says, I get it. It's going to be difficult, but understand I've overcome it. Understand that I'm ready to provide. Understand that I want to provide for you. So even in the midst of everything that life can throw at us, Jesus' response is to let go of worry and to hold on to trust <clears throat> because he's overcome all that can stand against us. But to be honest with you, I still hear all of that and say, okay, but I still struggle. Every now and then I, I get to get up in front of you and preach on something that I deeply struggle with. This is one of those Sundays. I struggle with worry. If you've known me for very long, if we've had conversations where uh, we get to be candid with each other, you know that this is one of my struggles. 
My first reaction to many times to things that happen is to worry about them. I get anxious about things. I look at worst case scenarios and act like I'm the only thing keeping that from happening. And then I'm worried that I'm worrying too much. And so my worry then has worry. It's a vicious cycle. (laughs) And it doesn't lead to a whole lot of great sleep. But you get the idea, right? We just worry and we go through these things. And then I start to worry because I ask myself, does my wife see this? Do my children see me leaning into my actions and my worry more than I'm leaning into trust? What am I teaching them? And so I stay up nights and I have a hard time letting things go. And I tell myself, it's okay though because I only worry because I care. If I didn't care, I wouldn't worry so much. And that's what I say to make myself feel better. And by buying into that one idea, that simple idea that I worry because I care, I invite sin into my life. Jesus tells us not to worry, not to be anxious, to trust in him. Philippians 4, 6 says that we're not to be anxious about anything. And I know that. But I go on being anxious all the same, and that really is the definition of sin. That Jesus tells me to do something, and I turn around and do the exact opposite. I had to get it onto my kids yesterday for that exact same thing. Not worry, but you know, you get the idea. I don't know what I do if my kid comes. I'm just really worried about this. <laughs> like, oh man, you're starting young. Um, I tell, well, Jesus talks about this. Because when it's a sin that I struggle with, when it's a sin that you struggle with, what we typically do is if it's a common sin in our culture, we tend to downplay it and say that it's okay. We tend to say it's common and not address it rather than understanding that this is important. Jesus talks about this way too much for us to label it as the common condition and move on because it's indicative of a deeper issue. It's indicative of a deeper sickness that exists in so many of us. And I tell myself I worry because I care, but the truth is that really when I worry, it shows that I have more trust in my actions than in God's capabilities. Or to put it another way, which is the first point of the day, is this, that worry is not an indication of how much you care, it's an indication of how much you control. Let that sink in just a little bit. I try to control God way too much. I try to control my life way too much. And whenever I approach God from the position of control, what I'm really saying is, God, there's not much you can do with my life because I'm not going to let you take me out of control. Worry doesn't show that we care. It shows that we control. Because when I'm in control, I know where the pieces are. I know what I'm going to do, and I trust in that to give me some semblance of peace. And so let's read Philippians 4, 6 together. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're told that the path to peace is not found in our actions. It's not found in our control. There's a really interesting thing. Whenever Mallory and I were first married, um, well, I guess we've been married a couple years at this point, but she was 20 weeks pregnant with Hattie. And I was working, I had a weekend ministry in Venita, Oklahoma, and I was working there. Mallory dropped me off, my car was already there, and she drove back to Joplin where our apartment was. But on the way, she, uh, there was this new casino that they had just built 
uh, right over the border into Missouri. And she crosses over this hill going 75 miles an hour. And a lady had stopped to make an illegal U-turn in the middle of the highway, stopped dead in the middle of the highway, and Mallory hit her without ever touching her brake. So she, 20 weeks pregnant, 75 miles an hour, hit a stationary object that threw her in front of a semi, which, praise God, missed her. She ends up in a ditch. She crawls out of the car, climbs up the ditch, gets to the top of the road. And this is where uh, she calls me. After, I mean, she called 911 first, but then she called me. And she tells me, I've just been in a wreck. And my thought was, fender bender, whose fault is it? All these things. But then she tells me the story. And then... Uh, <laughs> She says, there's an ambulance here. Should I get in it or should I? Uh, there's another lady who's willing to take me to the hospital. And at that time, I thought it was going to be our fault and I didn't want the ambulance bill. And so I said, just hop in with the lady. She'll take you to the hospital, but please go. And so she goes and I run out to my car and I take off. And I got to tell you, it's a 45-minute drive from Vanita to Joplin. I made it in 30. <laughs> there was one part where I was surprised that my car could go as fast as it was going. <laughs> But I get to the emergency room, and we wait. She's in the emergency room because she didn't take an ambulance, so we're waiting. And then we waited for four hours. And then at four hours, Mallory looks over to me, and she says, the only weird thing is I haven't felt Hattie kick since the accident. And Hattie was a very active baby at this point. At that point, I reached for control in every way imaginable, yelling at nurses, demanding that my wife be seen because I saw all the worst-case scenarios unfolding in front of me, and I knew that I had to act. But in that moment, I also had zero control. I could not control anything that was happening. It was a horrible feeling. We hate being out of control. And we're told that the path to peace is not found in our actions, but it's found in letting go of things and trusting God. And that doesn't mean we don't act. It just means that we don't trust in our actions. We trust in the capable God over our incapable selves. And in those moments when I'm sitting there screaming at people, trying to get somebody to help my child, the most effective thing I could do is fall to my knees and just say, God, you've got this. Regardless of when the doctor gets to us, you've got this. Because we're called to give things over to God. And it's not always these big moments of, uh, of trauma. It's actually moments of sometimes small things, like personal finances, or not knowing what's going to happen, or dealing with all the uncertainty and instability that we see around us every single day. And so we're told to let it go, and I've got to be honest, that's terrifying. And there are so many of us that cannot fathom what life would look like if we could let these things go and just follow God, just as a really not a great word to throw in there because just, it's so difficult. But let me share this truth with you. It's a truth that I'm learning. Letting go doesn't say that we don't care. It actually says that we care enough to entrust these things to the God who is far more capable than we are. It's like if a child were stuck underneath a car. And a parent is desperately trying to pull the car off of the child, but there's a guy right behind them with a forklift. And the parent won't move because it has to be them. It has to be them or the, that's the ones that are acting to do all these things. And you wouldn't look at that and say, that's a parent that really cares. You'd look at that and say, that's a parent who's foolishly not allowing the thing to happen, the good thing, not allowing the capable one to come in. It's a parent that doesn't care enough to give it over to someone who's truly capable to save the child. Or maybe it's a parent that doesn't believe in the power of forklifts. That's true. And when we insist that we have to be the ones to act to ensure our own security, what we're saying is either we don't 
care enough to allow the capable God to handle these things or that we really don't believe in the capable God. Next point is this, that worry shows that there is a disconnect between what we say about God and what we believe about God. Because so often we approach God and we say, God, I believe that you're powerful. I believe that you're strong. I believe that you can forgive our sins. And I believe that you can take care of all my eternity. But then when it comes to our day-to-day stuff, we're like, but I got this. Do we really believe that we serve a powerful God? Do we really believe that our God is capable? Is there a disconnect between what we say about God and what we actually believe about him? Because if we say that we believe in God, if we say that we believe in a God who is able and a God who is capable, I'll say it this way, in Ephesians 3.20, says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. If we say we believe in a capable God, but we never place our trust in him, then our faith is nothing more than theoretical. This week, I got to have some conversations. I, I did something that I've never really done. I posted something to Facebook, and I asked for people who have been skydiving to let me call them and talk to them a little bit about their experience. And I got to have uh, four, yeah, four different conversations. Uh, and it was interesting. Like One of them was uh, one of Tony's sons. Uh, another one was Curtis Stuke had been skydiving. Um, David Shaw and... Uh, Anthony Batiste, and so I, I got to have a phone call with all of these guys, uh, but what happened was this. I asked them just to tell me about their experience, <clears throat> and uh, you need to understand, these are people that thought that they would put on a harness, they'd be strapped to another person, they would hop on a plane, they would fly up to as far as 13,000 feet, they would slide to an open door in the side of the plane, and then they would jump out, and they thought that this sounded like a good idea. I completely agree with them on it, though. I really want to try it someday. But anyway, um, but with talking to each of them, I noticed the difference. If they were young, like 18 or so, whenever they did it, they didn't really have that moment of, like, worry. They had the anxiety of, like, you know, I can't believe we're doing this. But they never had that moment of, like, what if I die, you know? But then the one that I talked to that just did it for the first time last year and has a family, he was like, man, yeah, I, re- I sat there in that plane, and I thought the entire time, this is crazy, what am I doing? I'm putting my trust inside this parachute that I didn't even pack, and I don't know what happened here. And just this idea of, like, this is crazy. And while they had difference in that, every person I talked to said that they had to come to a point as they were doing it where they reasoned that they had to trust the guy that was taking them on the jump, that he knew what he was doing. When they packed the parachutes, he knew what he was doing. When they put on the harnesses, he knew what he was doing. And eventually when they jumped out of the plane, he knew what he was doing. But what if, while they're up in the plane, they decided that they weren't going to jump? Some would say that that would have been the first true moment of wisdom in the whole day. (laughs) But what if they get in the plane, they get all strapped up, they get up to 13,000 feet, the door opens, they're like, nah, never mind, not going to do it. The truth is, is at that point, they would have come to a decision that they could not trust the, par- the parachute, the equipment, the person. Because until you jump out of the plane, your faith in the parachute is theoretical. Until you put your weight on it, all it is is just something that I'm sure it would hold me. I'm just not going to put my weight on it. 
Do you believe that you serve a God who is powerful? A God who loves you? A God who is capable? Or do you not? There's not a third direction. You either jump or you don't. And we as the church cannot look at worry anymore and say that it's not a big deal. Jesus says it's a big deal. Scripture says over and over again for us to put down our fear and trust God. And please understand, I'm not sitting here today talking about clinically diagnosed anxiety disorders. That's a whole different thing from another place. I'm talking about worry and anxiety that comes from our failure to let go of control and trust in the provision, power, and leadership of God in our lives. And I hope you're at a spot where right now you're tracking with me a little bit. You know that there's something in your life that you just can't continue the way it's going. You know that it's not sustainable, sustainable, but also you may have no idea what to do with that. You may get to a point where you're like, Paul, I get it. I agree. When Scripture says don't worry, I understand that I shouldn't worry. When it says don't be anxious about anything, I understand that I'm not supposed to be anxious about anything, but I don't know how to overcome the worry and anxiety in my life. And I would sit there and I would say, absolutely, I'm right there with you. What's the answer? How do we let go and let God, as we hear so often? How do we trust God? What's a practical step that you can take to embrace this command and not to worry? And for that, we're going to go back to Philippians chapter 4. Because there's a part that we have yet to talk about. Don't be anxious about anything. We got that one covered. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, prayer is talking to God. Supplication is the act of making a humble request before God. So we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God to take over. But then look at this third, this third thing, with thanksgiving. Paul says in Philippians that a core part of dealing with anxiety in our lives is thanksgiving. Part of that, I think, is coming to God with everything that we're worrying about and saying, God, thank you for whatever you do. If you alleviate this, thank you. If you, if you lead me through this, thank you. I'm thankful for whatever you choose to do in my life. But the other thing I would say is this, that one of the things we're called to do when we're approaching God, especially with our worries, is to worship. And I ask this question, why would worship play such a pivotal role? Because sometimes worship, we see it as just coming to a room once a week and singing some songs together. And we sing, and as long as it's a song that we know a little bit or that we like, or as long as it's handled well by the band, then we finally feel, we feel like, okay, I've, I've had some time of worship. We sang some songs right before all this started. And let me ask the question then is, why does worship make such a difference? And that's the next point of the day is that when we worship, we treat God like God. We acknowledge who he is. We acknowledge his power. It's not just singing. It's not just the music being the way that we like. In fact, worship, when it's done well, our personal preferences don't actually factor in that much. Because the truth about treating God like God, or because in truth, it's about treating God like God. It's about acknowledging who he is. It's about acknowledging what he's done, what he will do. When we worship, we treat God like God. And part of treating God like God is believing in his power. Meaning that we come to God with all of our worries. But if we don't believe that he's powerful, that he loves us, we'll never trust him with our anxieties. 
And so when we worship, we not only acknowledge who God is, but we also are reminded of who we are in God, and that allows us to let these things go. It allows us to understand that we serve an incredibly big God who can handle all the stuff that we put on him. It allows us to see our worry through the perspective of the eternal and realize that what we have right now, what we're struggling with right now, is very temporary and God can take it. Because our worry and our worship stem from where we are in our identity with Jesus. When we believe that he has put these identi- this identity on us, it allows us to trust The key for worship or for worry and anxiety is worship. Because it acknowledges that we serve a God who can do things that we can't. And so what I would tell you is this when you're struggling, worship. When you're anxious, worship. Whenever you are just grasping for control, treat God like God and worship. We started today talking about David and how he was looking for the one thing. And if Jesus is the one thing in our lives, if he's the savior and the foundation of our security and our fulfillment, if he is that thing, then we lean on him and we trust him and we're not afraid. And the reason that we're not afraid is that acknowledging Jesus as the center and foundation of our lives shows that we believe that our greatest need is Jesus. And Jesus gives himself to us and he never will take himself away from us. And so when our greatest need is supplied in abundance with the knowledge that it will never be taken away, what could we possibly fear in this world? We could lose every material thing and we would still have Jesus. We could see everything that we know, every piece of thing in our lives that gives us comfort taken away and it's still okay because we have Jesus. We see that in the first century church in the book of Acts. And so in Matthew 6, 31, therefore do not be anxious, saying what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Hear this. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's not that we don't have concerns in this world. It's that we trust that Jesus knows what we need, and we let it go to him. And so we don't allow the concerns of this world to overwhelm us. And so today, I'd like to give you an opportunity. In a moment, we're going to have, uh, we're going to stand up and we're going to worship. We're going to sing of the greatness of God. And so what I could do, what I'd ask, or ask is this. Let the words pierce you. Understand what you're doing. Understand who you're really singing to. You're treating God like God. Believe in his power and ask him to take your worries. Offer them up as a sacrifice of trust in his power and in his love. And then thank him. Thank him for what he chooses to do in your life regardless of where that ends up taking you. We have a savior who can do so much. So now let us live out the next few moments in the truth of what I'm going to read for you to you from Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may, or that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We serve a God who is capable, who loves us, and not only is he capable, but he's willing. So let's take a moment and let's treat him like God. And let's begin the process of letting go and trusting that God has our next steps, God has our best interest, and that God has already provided the greatest need that we will ever have and it will never be taken away. And also remember that you're a lot more valuable than sparrows. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we love you. Um, Thank you for who you are and what you do. God, thank you that we can call on you and that we can know that you are strong. And God, today as a church, we confess that we struggle with anxiety. We struggle with worry. We struggle with control. And so, Father, I ask that today as we step into this time of worship, God, that you would help us to worship. You would help us to be thankful. God, that you would help us to together as a body let go. God, these are big things. I know they're not big for you. You, You've got this. But Father, for us, this is difficult. Lord, I ask that you would comfort us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us down this process. And that you would help us in the moments where we are most tempted to trust in our efforts, to trust or to fall into worry and anxiety. God, I ask that in those moments, You would help us to repent and to trust. God, please teach us to worship. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.